When's the last time you had an adult conversation with no children in the room? Well, this is why I go to sleep very late. Mm -hmm. Because Drew and I do talk at night, but a lot of times it's like midnight to one or one to two. Mm -hmm. And that would be that in my life. Other than that, it's really very noisy and exuberant and crazy all day. Yeah. And when's the last time you can remember having a conversation with another adult who's not your husband with no children in the room, face to face? Before COVID, mm-hmm. um, before COVID, I had... My friend Jody Over, who is a really amazing woman, she would come over for a Shabbat dinner, sometimes with her daughter, who is a playwright and an artist and uh, and teacher. Oftentimes, Jody and I would chat into the later hours. Um, often Drew would be, I don't know, he wouldn't be there actually. He would be like at a gig or on tour or something. Mm -hmm. So I miss that. Mm -hmm. But generally, I don't talk with a lot of adults for long lengths of time. Even if I talk to my parents, there's a lot of kids taking the phone and wanting to show them things and mm -hmm. lots right. of screaming. Yeah. <laughs> When I knew I was coming to Toronto to see you and visit you, I had sort of thought, okay, you know what? Um, I'm going to Toronto. I should, like, do something for Commonplace. I'm friends with Sheila Hetty. Why don't I reach out to Sheila? She'll tell me a writer that I should make sure I don't, you know, miss out on um, having a conversation with and recording with. And she did. She was like, you've got to talk to this person. They're amazing. And, and maybe I will talk to that person. But there were two problems. One, uh, your youngest, Maya, is not vaccinated. And I wanted to make sure that I did not take any unnecessary COVID risks. But also I realized I really wanted to talk to you in this moment where it, you're coming into this new stage of your career as a musician and a composer and a performer, but it's it's not so public facing yet for all of these we reasons that we're going to talk about. And you're dangerously near me. I get ideas. I get ideas. I want to hold you so much closer than I dare to. I want to scold you because I care more. Hello and welcome to episode 102 of Commonplace. I'm your host, Rachel Zucker. You're listening to me speak with Rebecca Wokstein, musician, composer, mother, and lucky for me, my cousin. At the end of April 2022, I took my youngest son, Judah, to visit Rebecca, her husband, Drew, and their three daughters, Sylvie, nine, 
Annie, then six, now seven, and Maya, two, at their home in Toronto, Canada. The oldest of my three first cousins on my mom's side, Rebecca is the daughter of professional pianist-turned-judge-now-retired Gary Wokstein and professional harpist Elizabeth Borsodi. Rebecca's sister, Hannah Wokstein, is a cellist, speech therapist, and mother of two. Their brother, Nathaniel Wokstein, is a professional violinist, multi-instrumentalist, composer, and sound designer. Nathaniel and I collaborated on my immersive audio project, Sound Machine, and he's done a ton of work on Commonplace, including composing our translation theme music and mixing and fixing many episodes. Rebecca's husband, Drew Jureka, is a professional violinist, multi-instrumentalist, arranger, and producer. He's performed on hundreds of albums, produced and recorded countless arrangements for other artists, and was nominated for a Grammy for his string arranging, playing, and engineering work for pop sensation Dua Lipa. Becca and Drew's three daughters, yes, even the two-year-old, play violin and the older two also play piano and sing in their as-of-yet-not-named family band. Rebecca is 10 years younger than I am. I have many memories of visiting my aunt and uncle in Appleton, Wisconsin, when Rebecca was just a baby, of picking her up out of her crib in the early mornings and playing with her while the grown-ups slept. Gary was my first piano teacher, Elizabeth taught me to sew, change diapers, and properly wash my hair. The Wokesteins moved to Madison, Wisconsin, and my mother and I visited them there when Rebecca was all the ages her kids are now. I remember Rebecca's bat mitzvah and her siblings' bat and bar mitzvot. Rebecca and her mother played at my wedding when Rebecca was just about the age that Judah is now. But my baby cousin is all grown up, visiting her in her beautiful home full of music and singing, so many instruments, little girls everywhere, bookshelves and paintings from my childhood home that Rebecca lovingly adopted after my mother died, the little wooden rocking chair that was my mother's, then mine, then my three sons, then Rebecca's three daughters. Rebecca is the mom now and an accomplished, ambitious artist. Rebecca Wokstein is at home playing folk, klezmer, pop, Latin, and jazz, and can be heard on numerous Juno-winning albums, often performing Drew Jureka's string arrangements with the Venuti String Quartet. Aside from her active performing career and time in the studio, Rebecca holds a doctorate in violin performance from the University of Toronto, as well as a degree in violin from the Cleveland Institute of Music. Rebecca has taught private lessons for many years, as well as a string ensemble and tango ensemble at Humber College. Rebecca is a member of the Piadora Tango Ensemble, which has performed with the London Symphonia and Hannaford Street Silver Band. Piadora sold out shows at the Ottawa Chamberfest, Indian River Music Festival, the Canadian Opera Company's World Music Series, and many other places. Rebecca is also a composer and songwriter and has received grants from the Toronto Arts Council and Ontario Arts Council to compose for Piadora, 
including for Payadora's collaboration with award-winning tango ballet dancers Point Tango, which resulted in an hour-long feature film of dance and music called Tango in the Dark, created during the summer and fall of the 2020 COVID-19 pandemic. Rebecca and Drew are currently collaborating with the Grammy Award-nominated band Yiddish Glory in concerts and a live TV broadcast of Polish tango. Yiddish Glory features anti-fascist songs and music documenting Nazi atrocities that were discovered in a former Soviet archive in the Vernadsky National Library of Ukraine. You can check out I Am a Typhus Louse, Yom Kippur Without Fascists, and other incredible pieces, as well as Silent Tears, The Last Yiddish Tango, which premiered on Holocaust Remembrance Day 2022, featuring new music composed by Rebecca Wokstein based on testimonies of Holocaust survivors in Canada. In addition to violin, Rebecca performs as a vocalist on her Hardanger fiddle, harp, and guitar. She writes jazz and musical theater songs and is currently writing a musical. Judah and I had a fabulous time visiting the Wokstein Jureka family. Judah played their piano whenever he didn't have one or all of his three cousins lovingly mauling him. He played piano alone while Drew or Rebecca sweetly called out advice from the other room as they cooked dinner and wrangled Maya. And several thrilling times, Drew or Becca played with Judah while I distracted my three amazing cousinettes. And amidst all this, Rebecca put aside a few hours to talk, alone with me, face-to-face in Drew's studio. Sylvie helped me with mic check and gave me notes on a few questions I planned to ask her mom. How about what it's like working with your family? Yeah, all that's these videos. A good one. Yeah. Um, another good one is, do you feel like, are you actually going to make all those music videos into a musical? Like you said, mm. you might, or is that just a wish? Yeah, yeah. In this conversation, Rebecca and I talk about COVID, creativity, ambition, hoop jumping, grant writing, pit work, ensemble work, the joy of learning new instruments and forms, and how both of us, in different ways and under different circumstances, came into our own while mothering young children. The one thing we wish we'd talked more directly about is my mother, Rebecca's aunt, Diane Wokstein. My mother adored her youngest brother, sister-in-law, nieces, and nephew. She was disappointed I never became even a halfway decent musician and that I sometimes resisted going to see her brother's family. I loved my young cousins, but was distracted by my teenage and young adult concerns. Also, Rebecca and Hannah were a little obsessed with me or at least with the VHS version of me that they'd watched hundreds of times playing Dolly in my yeshiva's junior high performance of Hello, Dolly. My mom died just a few months after Rebecca's oldest, Sylvie, was born. My mother's death hit us all very hard, my cousins especially. 
Although we do talk about it in this conversation, Rebecca, feeling she hadn't said it clearly enough, texted me this. Your mom always told me to sing and to perform with Drew. She knew I should get out of the orchestra. When she died, I knew I had to make a change to live a richer, more satisfying life like she did. My mother would be delighted to see the relationship I have now with Rebecca and her siblings and parents, and euphoric to see the changes Rebecca has made and all that she has achieved. My mother's memory, including the memory of her frustrations with us both, is a blessing. For this episode, all Commonplace patrons will get some incredible goodies, including access to three songs written by Rebecca Wokstein and performed by Piadora Tango Ensemble for their collaboration with Tango in the Dark, access to a brand new, just-recorded Rebecca Wokstein original, which is a song for Maya, and maybe a short clip of me playing Dolly in Hello, Dolly. Watch our social media for links to incredible performances by Rebecca Wokstein, Drew Jureka, Piadora, and truly the cutest family band videos you've ever seen. To find out how to become a Commonplace patron or member of the Commonplace Book Club, please go to commonpodcast.com or patreon.com slash commonplacepodcast. If you'd like to make a larger one-time donation, or if you'd like to talk to us about helping to make Commonplace financially sustainable, please email us at rachel at commonpodcast.com. For this episode, Commonplace's charitable partner will donate $250 to Music Cares, chosen by Rebecca Wokstein. Offering preventative, emergency, and recovery programs, Music Cares is a safety net supporting the health and welfare of the music community. Listener, I hope you enjoy this episode. It was a joy to record this conversation and deeply pleasurable and distracting to work on during these unbelievably difficult times. I get ideas, I get ideas. After we have said goodnight and still you linger, I kind of think you get ideas too. Your eyes are always saying the things you're never saying. I only hope Judah asked you the other day what your first musical memory was. Do you remember what you said? I think I said going to my mom's concerts uh, with different orchestras. We had a Volvo station wagon, and we would sit in the back seat with the harp over our heads and fight over who got the spot with the hole, <laughs> if you can imagine the top of the harp. Um, and I don't know, from a very young age, my mom said that I would just sit in the audience. She didn't have anyone to take care of me, and I just behaved. Mm-hmm. And she would point out, like, that why— couldn't I trust my kids in the same way? And I'm not sure. (laughs) That's really interesting. I mean, some of my earliest memories are of watching my mom perform. And I was absolutely expected to be quiet. You know, you do not speak when someone is performing. You don't make noise. It's okay to fall asleep, but that's that's about it, you know. And I was quite good at that, which I think is a quality. Like, I'm I think I'm a good listener, um, and I think part of that comes from 
being trained at a very early age to pay attention and to not make noise. I don't expect that of my kids. And there are moments where I feel not traumatized by that experience, but it's complicated when you, especially I think when you're a young girl and, and you're being praised a lot for being quiet and well-behaved. And then, so violin was your first instrument? Yes, I did, vi- I did Suzuki violin. I think I was three. Mm-hmm. And apparently I would go into the lesson and hug the this, uh, very strict Russian teacher's legs and, <laughs> and she was stiff and it, it just was not a good fit. And my mom said she just couldn't handle it. And so then I was asking for violin lessons for years, mm-hmm. actually. Um, and, and so it wasn't until I was about 10 mm-hmm. when I got violin lessons, but I was very driven at that point, I had had some piano lessons as well, which weren't super successful, actually. Um, when my teacher adopted a baby, she only kept her really good students. Huh. And so I wasn't taking lessons anymore uh. with her. <laughs> but, uh, but, I, but I wanted to be a violinist. And from, I think, the time that I started getting lessons, I would tell people I'm going to be a violinist. Huh. What what was that in you, and why why violin? Well, I you never know. I mean, I see it with my kids now. Like Sylvie, it's almost like a parrot of what I've said. She she'll expresses her own opinions, and it's uh, it's so sweet and charming and wonderful. But then I think, you know, when when do you know what <laughs> what? What were your thoughts or what were your mother's thoughts? You know, mm. and violin is my mom's favorite instrument. Huh. And um, when she could see that I was going to be leaving home, she had to ha- have a violinist in the home. Mm. I felt actually that she was replacing me with my brother, who's almost 10 years younger than me. So that's just kind of funny. But I also just feel like I love the instrument and really soulful and I'm very glad to be a violinist now but Mm -hmm. I think I might have just been trying to please my mom Mm -hmm. from the start I definitely have a pleasing no not I'm not a pleasing person (laughs) I (laughs) I think I I'm a pleaser Mm -hmm. I would maybe I'm not successful at it but I think I have that in me Mm -hmm. and so when you imagined being a violinist did it mean being a violinist in an orchestra, playing, like, what what was your fantasy of, like, success? I think as violinists, we want to be soloists. And, I mean, you want to, you work so hard on this incredible solo material and how to interpret it and be creative as a musician. And it's so fun, like, violin lessons the greatest thing in my life. I mean, having somebody nurture you every week. I mean, in high school, I had a few lessons a week. At the peak of it, when I was auditioning, I had, I think, two, two or yeah, two two-hour lessons a week, hmm. private lessons. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that kind of attention and care and to to you and your growth is really exciting. So I think 
the idea of sitting in a section, an orchestra, that's never, that was never exciting. It was more like, well, that's how you actually can earn a living and like afford life, mm. <laughs> afford to have a place to live and buy food because playing solos isn't happening. Mm -hmm. It's like almost nobody gets to do that. So when I went to Cleveland Institute of Music, I remember telling my teacher, it's funny to look back, he was the concertmaster of the Cleveland Orchestra, but he was a beautiful player. Mm. And he was the concertmaster of the Cleveland Orchestra, which is like the biggest orchestra in the U.S., or at least one of. And he was first violin of the Cleveland Quartet. And I said, I want to be just like you. Mm. <laughs> and he was like, okay, as if it was no big deal. Like, sure, just work hard and you'll be there. No, it's not really like that. Um, but uh, I think as I've gotten to know myself better, I see that I am not a concertmaster. Mm. I mean, like, thank God I didn't win any kind of job like that. Because mm -hmm. I'm not, that's not my personality. I'm not a leader type of person. Um, I can't stand up to people who are really critical of me and who hate me just for the position I have. Mm. So that would have really been awful, just mm -hmm. awful for me. The thing that I still want is the string quartet and the the tango band that I have created because I get to be a soloist, but I get to get comfortable with just a few people, rehearse as much as I need to to be comfortable on stage. I know everybody on stage with me wants me to do well because mm. we're in this thing together. And and it's for me this is this is perfect. This is the best. Was it a hard choice for you to decide to go to a conservatory, a music conservatory for college, or was that an easy choice for you? Or was that a, a choice of practicality? Um, I could have gone to University of Wisconsin tuition free because I got a scholarship as a violinist there. Definitely not on my academics. I wouldn't have gotten that. <laughs> Uh, but my violin teacher in high school was like, it was a waste of her talent. She, you can't possibly go. You have to go to a big school. You have to study with an you know, amazing teacher. And uh, yeah, so we made the expensive decision mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, went to the Cleveland Institute of Music. But I, I wanted to be a performer. Mm-hmm. I wasn't concerned about whether I was at a university, but CIM, Cleveland Institute, is affiliated with Case Western Reserve University, mm -hmm. which I didn't know at the time was going to matter to me, but it ended up being important as well. And Okay, so what? when did you meet Drew? I met Drew very beginning of my freshman year. Wow. He was playing jazz outside of the dorm with the bassist. He's a phenomenal jazz violinist. And I I was supposed to be going for a run, which is like the only time in my life I've run. <laughs> <laughs> I was going for a run with with a young man. Mm -hmm. And uh, a romantic prospect? Not on I had no interest, but I okay. think I think it was one sided. 
But <laughs> and I saw. Um, I mean, I don't know why I was running though. If I was totally uninterested, that's that's what I don't. Rem- <laughs> I can't remember my thinking on that. Um, but Drew was out there playing with this bassist, and I said, "You go ahead. I got. I got to hear this." Wow. He was like, "But you know, we were going." I was like, nah, "No, <laughs> no, I gotta, I gotta hear this." And I sat down. I was just absolutely mesmerized because everything for me had been classical music mm-hmm. and a little bit of klezmer. I mean, listening to like Yitzhak Perlman's In the Fiddler's House. I always loved listening to the radio, like Oldie Station, Soft Rock, Mariah Carey, Whitney Houston, but not violin doing mm. something so different with the instrument. And I, I was so excited by it. And I said... If you'll give me lessons, I'll do your laundry. I have no money. This is a good pickup line. <laughs> <laughs> and apparently when I left, Drew says that his friend was like, wow, she really likes you. <laughs> but I don't remember feeling that. I really just remember wanting to play jazz like him. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it became it, it started out that way and pretty quickly we ended up dating and now we play together all the time which is really pretty awesome yeah I mean so I mean you play together all the time and you have this family band so even though Maya has not fully come into her own as a violinist (laughs) at age two yet you know there's like five violins in this family which is unbelievable I've always felt that you describe or that I don't know if it's you who describes it this way, but that that you and Drew, despite playing, I mean, Drew plays a lot of different instruments. So do you. Um, but that that the two of you have differences in the way that you are musicians. Um, I, I'm, I don't think I'm using the right language for this, but do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, I don't know. Drew is just, I just aspire to be anything as good as him, basically. <laughs> what like, does that mean, though? Like, technically? No, not technically. I think technically we're we're on par, basically, but his ears are just so good, and... He, I mean, I'm actually studying jazz guitar and hoping that through this study of practical theory, I'm going to be able to understand music better because Mm. I hear everything, but I can't say, I can't describe it in the way that he could. Um, I'm getting better though. I, I do think that it's, I think it's helping things come together as a violinist everything's so, you know, melody-based. And so the harmonic structure, you can sort of, you can hear it, but not fully comprehend it. So that's, I guess that's a big part of it. And because he's a producer and arranger, he's just, he's immersed himself in in how music works. Mm. And he's an incredible resource for me as I go forward into being a more creative musician. 
I, I always know the quality of my work because I can just, I have him mm. to run it by. So if I say, how is this? And he says it's good. I know it's good. Like it's 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 there. Mm-hmm. I could show it to anybody after him, and he's, you know, pretty harsh critic too. <laughs> so if it's not there, you know, get back to work. Right. Well, when did your when did you get your doctorate? Well, that's later. So when I was in Cleveland, I I had a couple electives I could take each semester, and I took journalism classes and I loved them at Case Western. I had a fantastic teacher, Ted Gupp. And so then I had an internship at the Plain Dealer, which I enjoyed. And I took every creative writing. What's the Plain Dealer? Oh, Cleveland Plain Dealer. It's a newspaper there. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. And then I took every creative writing class that they offered. I remember one in particular with Connie Schultz was great. Mm. And I felt I was I was doing better in um, in writing than violin. Oh, and I also took on a minor in viola. And mm. my viola teacher wanted me to switch over to viola, but I was playing Hindemith, which I didn't like, on viola and Brahms on violin. So in the end, I... I didn't pursue the viola. I just like the music better on violin. But I ended up getting a major in English along with, so I got three degrees in five years. Mm. And and so that's your BS in music? Is that what it is? It's a it's... BM. And then I got the... You have a BA in English? Yeah. Okay. And then the minor in viola. Okay. And, uh, and then... <laughs> Because I wanted to get my money's worth. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if it's cultural or what. But, I mean, I knew it was really expensive for my parents. I knew I was going to have a lot of loans to pay in the future. And I was like, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get my money's worth. So mm-hmm. I'm going to get a tack on my master's. So in one more year, I could get my violin master's at the same time. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, viol- yeah, no. No, those three plus the minor. That's what I did in five years. That's gotcha. what it was, which looking back, that was really crazy. Well, you've continued at that pace, <laughs> basically. Well, I'm really good at hoop jumping. Uh-huh. You know, I I got my Canadian citizenship. You know, I do all of these kind of... But lately, I think the hoop jumping has been a bit more useful, you know, because if you can write a successful grant application... Mm-hmm which I recently did. I mean, many, many failed ones, but I had a successful one. Now maybe that hoop jumping and that all that nonsense with the unnecessary schooling that I did, maybe it helped me to be able to put some of my projects out into the world. Now I feel so excited because I feel like these two parts of you, which were never separate, were always real passions, real talents, real sort of voices within you are coming together in practical ways like the grant writing, but also, you know, you're writing songs and you're writing lyrics. And the hoop jumping, 
is has all of these practical components, but also producing and and creating these, you know, collaborations between dancers and and children and adults. We're going to get to that. But OK, so you you were in Cleveland for five years and then you moved to Canada. Then I I didn't know what to do. Mm-hmm. Um, Drew had gone home to Toronto. He was invited to join Jeff Healy's Jazz Wizards, which was a nice, nice job for a jazz musician. And so when I finished school, I came, but I needed a visa. And so I was looking for an MFA program, actually. Hmm. I I was really excited about the writing. I was, I really did not want to play in any more youth orchestra, like unpaid orchestra. I'd played professionally since I was 16. I was mm. playing in the Madison Symphony, paid. Mm-hmm. And so I had like the worst attitude a student could have about unpaid <laughs> orchestra, like awful attitude. Um, not proud of it. Um, but so I didn't want to go to music school and have to do that. Mm. I wasn't feeling excited about more school, though I love lessons. I, if it could just be violin lessons, it would be fine. But I couldn't, I couldn't find a program. I can't remember what happened. But anyway, I ended up going to Glen Gould School in Toronto, which helped me with my residency status. And then I wanted to get my doctorate because I thought I wanted to be a, maybe a violin professor mm-hmm. uh, with a string quartet in residence. That was my dream job at that point. And it was too expensive uh, to do it as an international student. So I got my citizenship the first like moment that mm. I could get it. Then I did a doctorate at University of Toronto. Mm. But while I was doing that, I was working a lot. I played with all the orchestras in the city. And yeah, I was, I was fairly profitable in that period. Mm-hmm. And More so than our recent years. <laughs> <laughs> right. You were playing for the ballet. Um, and and was this primarily work for money? Yeah. Yeah. Looking back, I mean, I basically was able to pay for our down payment for our house by myself, like with, um, with all of the money. Because every time I got a paycheck, I would play with the Toronto Symphony or the Canadian Opera Company or the National Ballet or the main three, but all kinds of other freelancing too. I just pretended I didn't make that money. Mm. I put it in a in my savings account Mm -hmm. and just lived off of whatever teaching income or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so I think it was really important because it set us up financially to be in a position that I can be a little bit more selective about my work and to have this opportunity to be more creative. Mm -hmm. But I did not, I did not do any creative work. Right. Like in my 20s. Mm-hmm. I don't think. Like maybe I wrote a story or two. I don't know. What was Drew doing primarily during those early years when you were like when Sylvie and like when Sylvie and Annie were born? Yeah, he was touring a lot. He played with Jill Barber. He played, I don't know, he, he toured so much. He was in, in demand. 
and it was it was very tough on me. It was very tough on me before having kids because I missed him and never I never really felt like I had a whole bunch of friends in Toronto, so I would be kind of just on my own unless I was working. So, yeah, but and and at that time my work usually paid better than his. Mm. He would do things like go for two weeks to a music festival in Mexico mm. in February and leave me. And I could have actually gone, but I would have had to play basically un, pretty much unpaid in an orchestra mm-hmm. when I could be making real money in Toronto. Mm-hmm. So, but he definitely had more fun than me, like a lot more fun than me. <laughs> And I was so envious, mm-hmm. and uh, I just remember I would, I would look at him and be like, "Oh my gosh, I wish I was, you know, having my own voice." Like, I never played, I never, <laughs> no, I couldn't hear myself. Right, I was just in a section. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't have my own projects. Nobody called me because they wanted to hear me it was just like oh I think she could fill the spot if not her who cares it's someone else mm-hmm. and it's very hard on section player subs because you feel like everybody's judging you in the section which they are um, they literally they literally vote like grade you at the end of the year hmm. in different orchestras and and your social skills are super important Wow. Oh, yeah. You know, whether people like you, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm not that likable, I think. <laughs> I <don't know. laughs> so eventually it kind of fell away, a lot of the orchestral work. Um, I was very, very stressed out mm-hmm. in the orchestra, afraid of making a wrong move. I would second guess everything, look at someone else's fingerings. They were probably better than mine. I think my bow hand's not as good as theirs. I think... You know, everything, everything that I could think of. I mean, I dropped my bow because I was trying to change my bow hand to copy someone ahead of me. It was really not good for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I tried to to do it, uh, but I don't think, I think a lot of people are feel that way. Mm-hmm. Maybe I felt it more strongly. I'm not sure. But I can say that it was definitely hard. Mm-hmm. It was definitely hard on me. I mean, I just remember one conversation. I don't remember which baby this was where I was saying to you, you have to stay hydrated. You have to stay <laughs> hydrated. And you were saying, what? I, I, I have this great way of making it through these concerts or I don't drink any water because I can't pee when I'm in the pit. Like I can't, I can't, that, you know, you know, they can't, they're gonna, not going to keep hiring me. I'm always pregnant. Like I have to, I have to be able to make it through this without drinking water. And I was like, no, 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 you, you must drink I water. I remember this. Oh, I mean, so, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I would, and I would just sort of picture you largely pregnant you played until almost the the births on on all well on two of your kids um you know I can't imagine that's easy and right after and right after I was teaching the day after (laughs) but that I still don't think is a big deal because 
you're just sitting mm-hmm. for like an hour. It's fine. Right. Okay. So you you say during this time you weren't doing any creative work, but you actually created children um, and you created this home and you no, created so this family. No, so it's my twenties, okay. my twenties. I didn't have my first daughter was born at thirty. Okay, and so I think my thirties, mm. the creation began. Let's say yes. <laughs> my twenties, no. Okay, no. I pretty much that was my twenties. I think how I described it. Mm-hmm. And when did Payadora start, or was that was that your first kind of breakout? Like I'm going to do what I want to do. Talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. I I had a new baby. Mm -hmm. Like she was, I think it started. So I, the one thing that I did while I was playing in all those orchestras was I joined a mariachi band. So I was a part of the Mexican community after hours. (laughs) So I would play in the orchestra pit. And then get on the subway, get to the meetup place, get picked up with the van, and they'd have my uh, my costume. I'd change in a parking lot or on the street. Who cares where? Uh, you get comfortable that way. Mm-hmm. And then go play somebody's birthday party where there's not even room for you to move your bow. Like, you can only, you know, play with two inches of bow because... They want a five-piece band, but the house—it's like a one-bedroom house or something. It was, <laughs> it was amazing because this community really cares about music, mm-hmm. and and then I would play serenades, you mm-hmm. know, outside of people's windows. You know, wait, was, how in the world did you did you, blue-eyed, blonde-haired Jewish girl from Wisconsin, <laughs> get hooked up with this mariachi band? Um, well, actually this, uh, this guy who became a good friend of mine, he, uh, I feel like he approached me a couple times. Um, I don't know. Looking back, I think maybe they advertised at U of T while I was doing my doctorate, maybe. Um, they had told me to come and see them. Mm-hmm. So I went to a restaurant and I thought, I thought it was really fun. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to have fun. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't having any fun. Mm-hmm. And and so I, I joined. And then I started to learn Spanish. Mm-hmm. I had learned French in, in the U.S. And now I'm in Canada learning Spanish. Mm-hmm. Everything was backwards. And, yeah, it, it was, it wasn't also, it also wasn't the right fit for me for a mm-hmm. whole bunch of reasons, but... But it opened me up. It, mm-hmm. I had to sort of dance around. I started singing. I would improvise over ballads. And and I got to see the effect that you can have on an audience. You know, people, it was my music with these people that everybody would be dancing to. Mm-hmm. You know, we would make their night. Mm-hmm. When you're in a pit, you don't even see the audience. Right. You're very disconnected. Yeah. So it was just a really fun, fun uh, change, mm-hmm. I would say. Okay. And so then how did, and then where did Payadora come from? So I told them, I told the band leaders, I said, you know, I 
really want a tango band, like from the start. I had wanted that since college after hearing Piazzolla's albums. Mm -hmm. And they said, okay, well, there's this one guy who plays tango piano in town. And then I did a, I ended up getting to do a gig with him and I met a bass player through that who was um, Argentinian. And we decided to start looking for musicians. And so it, that, it did actually come out of that work. Mm. And it took, it took a while, like a few years looking for people. And it's not like with a string quartet where you, you can find the right people and then all the music is out there mm. for you to just, you know, purchase or, you know, download or whatever. And then you can just practice it. You have to actually create this music. Mm. So the, that was a whole other question. How do how do you do this? The constellation of questions. <laughs> what what called to you about tango in particular? What do you mean by you have to create this music? Is it is it that there's just not a a deep recorded written um, history of tango music, or is it that there's plenty of recordings? Um, but these recordings are of different ensembles arrangements mm. and for the most part they're not available to the public you know they I think they pass them down to mm. the new musicians so you either transcribe arrangements that you hear on recordings or make your own arrangements or as it as it is now we do a lot of our own writing like I I've been doing more composing for the group and so it's just becoming more and more creative. So we started out doing more transcriptions. Mm -hmm. um, and it was very helpful that the bass player was doing his PhD on tango. Mm. He was from Argentina. And so I was able to really find out a lot about the old greats, the, the traditional tango music that I didn't know. I knew the more modern stuff. So... That's what I mean about creating our own music. And every ensemble also has different instrumentation. Mm -hmm. So for our particular instrumentation, we need to make charts for that um, and then hopefully make them our own as well. And as far as why I wanted to play tango, well, the, the music is so exciting and so... It's got, I mean, I love romantic era violin music. I just love playing music. Violin concertos by Glazunov and Brahms and Sibelius. This is, this is my groove. So I would say that Argentine tango music, the violin playing is like that, hmm. actually. It's very, and, and, and there's so much opportunity for elegance and for um, sensitivity. The music is is crazy too, which is just fun. Like I like I like the wild aspect of the music that it goes between every emotion constantly. Mm. You know? <laughs> so it's never dull. Mm -hmm. I don't like dull. I like I like expressive. Mm -hmm, <laughs> mm -hmm. So, Pandora is a tango band, but do is all the music you play tango music, or no? 
No, well, it started out, it started out as really tango band. Now it's not even, we now do we, uh, tango, both modern and traditional, and then folk music of Argentina, mm. and our own compositions, which are, let's say, inspired mm -hmm. by music of that region, both the folk and the tango. And we have a vocalist we work with. I do a lot of singing now too. And I think it's just getting, it's just been opening up mm -hmm. a lot more, a lot more different ways of expressing ourselves, which is really fun. Mm -hmm. So I was recalling this memory the other day that I shared with you about the ghost of my mother, your aunt, who was very influential to you, and we can talk about that or not, <laughs> is sort of like always in the room for me in a certain way. Um, and I think she, I mean, she just adored you and your siblings so much. I'm certainly at a stage in my life where I'm just so aggravated to realize how many things she was right about. <laughs> <laughs> you know, now that she's not alive anymore and I'm making my own choices. And I was remembering this one particular time, and maybe it happened more than once, that you were visiting us in New York and you were playing violin um, in the downstairs of Patch and Place. And I remember that it was actually complicated because the ceilings were so low that it was hard for you to have a full range of bow. <laughs> um, and, you know, whenever I saw you, someone was always, you know, sort of encouraging you to perform. Um, and I wasn't always sure how you felt about that. Um, but so here we go, you know, Rebecca's going to perform. And so I was watching and boy, my mom was just like, loosen up, Rebecca, loosen up, you know, move your hips and move your shoulders. And, you know, I want to see, you know, you're, perf being a performer means not just, you know, playing technically well. And I, I mean, it was so connected, I think, to sexuality also that, that that was part of what was like always very uncomfortable and embarrassing where, you know, she, <laughs> she, she just wanted everyone to loosen up all the time. Um, but it, I will say, if my mom is listening, you have become the person she wanted you to become. And I think I have too, in a lot of ways. I have certainly loosened up quite quite a bit. <laughs> um, I don't think we can ever be as loose as her. No, it's no. impossible for us. It's impossible. <laughs> you know, when I think of you as a teenager, and then I see, you know, in your gorgeous, sexy dresses with you know singing and playing music in these tango performances. You've come a long way, baby. <laughs> like, what was that process like for you? When, when and how did you become comfortable to start singing along with playing music? Well, I want to just say, first of all, that I don't think that a lot of the men that I've played with think that my dresses are that sexy or that they're sexy enough. Mm. I don't like dresses that stick to my hips mm. and such. And... Um, 
all the way down. I'm not into that. <laughs> so the A-line thing is like not mm-hmm. that sexy. But um, yeah, like in a in a way, let's yeah. say in my comfort zone, maybe. How the singing, the singing started with the mariachis. And then I kind of wanted to in the first iteration of Payadora, but I didn't have any support mm. from the members at that time. I just kind of shyly said, maybe I could try. And like, no, there's no way. And so I just dropped it for mm. a few years. And then uh, I remember I... I think it was the tune I Get Ideas, mm. the Adios Buchachos we were going to do. And I was like, it could be kind of fun if I sang it in English with this Spanish-speaking um, Uruguayan vocalist. who he, he sings the Spanish and I do the English. And so I remember kind of like auditioning for mm. one of the band members who's now not here anymore. Um, I mean, he's alive. He's just moved back <laughs> <laughs> overseas. And I remember him sitting there with his arms crossed and he goes, yeah, okay. <laughs> okay and I was like okay what he's like yeah okay I think you could do this and I was so excited mm. oh my gosh if he thinks I can do it maybe I can do it you know? and then I've gotten good reception for it in fact I've now a couple times people say oh you're the singer and I'm like what I'm a violinist <laughs> who sometimes sings but um I don't know. I think people relate to singing a lot more. Yeah. And I I think I was so uptight. I was way too uptight to find my diaphragm or whatever it is that I'm using. Mm-hmm. But I think I might have found it in pregnancy. I think it helps. Say more. Yeah, I don't know. I think, I don't, I mean, I don't know. But it felt like somehow I had to feel my body in a new way. Mm-hmm. And I kept thinking, well, guys, I'm not singing next shows. There's no way. And then I did. Mm-hmm. And so somehow, and then after being pregnant, it was so easy to sing. Hmm. I guess that's what I mean, is that it was, it was hard, and I kept thinking this is not going to be possible. But then I kept sort of working it out somehow, figuring out in my body what, how to get, a, get the sound out, how to find the air somehow. And, and now... There's nothing in my stomach. Uh huh. There's nothing in the way. It's like, well, what was the big deal? Yeah. Oh, this that was easy. I don't, <laughs> it's so, so nice to sing when you're not pregnant. Reading poems in public when I was pregnant was actually difficult. Like just catching my breath, finding my breath, and then not being pregnant just felt like I had so much space. Yeah. So much freedom. Hmm. Okay. So you're you're singing. When did the real composing start? So I don't know why, but I had a real resistance to composing. Drew, my husband, he would he told me for years, why don't you write music? You like writing mm-hmm. and you like music. Maybe you should write music. And I was like, oh, no, I do not have any ideas. I couldn't possibly. My brain doesn't work like that like it's it's not possible for me and he just would roll his eyes and he usually knows me better than I know myself I think he's often (laughs) right that just takes me a while to get there yeah I I started writing 
music for Payadora to play, partly because funding-wise, Canada and Ontario and Toronto, they want to support new creative work. Mm. And so I was like, all right, well, I want to play and I, w- I want to get some help, you know. And so I think that was part of it. And then I got inspired by a piece that I heard. But I'm thinking of this piece that starts with a long Bandonian introduction. I listened to a Bandonian solo. Bandonian's the Argentine like um, squeeze box. Mm-hmm type of accordion um and and drew was already playing the bandonian yeah yes and so it ended up being the first piece that he ever played he he started he wanted to join the band when we lost (laughs) our accordion player did you make him um audition no but i made him practice (laughs) (laughs) um and the reception of that piece was was quite strong and because he really liked to play it like even to this day he'll say let's put that on the program and Mm. I'm even like kind of tired of it I'm like oh really he's like yeah so that gave me some real encouragement to keep at it Mm mm-hmm And when did you start writing lyrics? I frequently have students who will take poetry workshops with me and they'll say, I just want to write lyrics. And there's a lot of mixed feelings in the poetry world about like the whether lyrics are poems or poems are lyrics or are they sort of as different as music and words. I am no expert in this subject. Me neither. I, <laughs> I, I remember I wrote something about my experience in COVID and I sent it to you. Mm. And I said, what is this? And you said, it's a poem. And I was really excited. I was like, I wrote a poem. Um, I didn't think I could do that. Like I've written essays and stories, but you're the poet. So that was, that was very exciting to have my cousin poet tell me I wrote a poem. And I have not been writing lyrics for that long at all. It's very recent. And it began while rocking and nursing a baby to sleep. I would sit there with my iPhone and in those yellow notes, Mm. just, it was like the only quiet Mm -hmm. of the day. Mm Mm-hmm. And I would sit there sometimes extra long. You know, she's already asleep. And things would come to me. And maybe the music came after. And sometimes the other way around. I don't even know exactly looking back. But the experience of having the kids at home, actually, I have so many thoughts all the time. I'm 
it's like I'm living a tango. Like I'm so angry with them. And then I'm just full of, you know, affection for them. And, and then I'm just so sad because they're going to be older. I'm so, you know, I'm just in despair that I was mean to them. You know, it's like, <laughs> I'm like a crazy person. I feel like a crazy person all day long, up and down, up and down. I mean, if you say to me, like, how was your day? I would never know how to answer. Mm-hmm. Like, great. It was a perfect day, you know, because they're with me all day. And uh, they inspire, they inspired him many of the lyrics that I've written, these family music videos, the Like My Sister was the first one that I wrote. I loved this. I love Shirley Temple. I love old musicals. And in another life, I think maybe I'd be a musical theater person, but... Nobody else is under my skin like my sister. Nobody else can make me win like my sister. She's funny as heck, a pain in my neck. She stands up for me occasionally. She's my sister. She loves to annoy. It brings me such joy, my big sister. I, I always kind of wanted to write a musical. And so I'm sort of picking away at it and writing songs and then sometimes I think I have the right storyline and things are falling together and then maybe I don't and I'm not quite sure if I've got it yet. But the the Like My Sister song was really just straight out of my kids' daily lives together, how you know, about their relationship. Two girls. I clean up her messes. We share our old dresses. I'll never be lonely with her. She tattles on me, and I secretly steal her stickers. You do what? She thinks she knows best, but I always know how to trick her. I do know best. She's ready to play every day. Her hugs make everything okay. She's my sister. Big sister. And and then the latest one also just draws from our experiences as a family in COVID. They get to make all the choices. We're grown up. We can do whatever we want. No one will be the boss of me. I'll sit around and watch TV. I'll have a credit card. A playground in my yard. Years from today. Pizza for lunch and dinner too. Grown-ups will ask my point of view. other pieces as well that that are maybe for 
this musical that I'm talking about, which are not kid-driven. And I think in those cases it was maybe music first. Mm. Mm. So, yeah, with I, but I, the funny thing is every time I go to that yellow note section on my iPhone, it's just how I started doing it, mm-hmm. and it's really not a good software at all. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a techie person at all, and I can't just go sit down somewhere to do this. Like, mm-hmm. I got things to do, you know. I got to go check where my toddler is. She's up to no good all the time. <laughs> but once I find her, <laughs> then I can <laughs> then I can maybe jot something down if it comes to my head. So... That's that's how I've done it. There were no real demands, no laundry to do. The whole world was brand new. No real responsibility, but all the flexibility. I could touch my toes, wear my hair in bows when I was small. My happiness was paramount My folks sacrificed on my account No demanding boss, no financial loss When I was small I was well protected Decisions pre-selected All the new thrills, no mortgage Just this very week I was working on lyrics in Spanish Hmm. And... And still working on that yellow notepad. Mm-hmm. I mean, I love hearing about your compositional process and, you know, hearing about <laughs> Maya, your two-year-old, basically saying, I hate this, I hate this, when you practice. Every time. <laughs> <laughs> she doesn't say it, by the way. She screams it. <laughs> it's really offensive, super irritating. <laughs> You know, I just, I say back, you are not being supportive of mommy. <laughs> You're not being nice to mommy. You know? Mm-hmm. And she doesn't care. <laughs> At all. How old were Sylvie, Annie, and Maya in the March of 2020? So, I guess Maya was only, she was born in November four months old Mm -hmm. in her short life we had I played a whole bunch of nutcrackers Mm. uh, with the national ballet with her in the dressing room I always had to find a babysitter to hold her Mm -hmm. in the dressing room and then we had concerts with Pyadora in Florida and I had to get her I had to get her birth certificate like expedited I had to get in contact with the MPP the a member of parliament and because it was too soon I didn't realize after birth like you don't even have any of mm-hmm. the any of the things you need to cross the border so here we're running around performing in Hal- Halifax and then suddenly nothing mm-hmm. just nothing at all and I really I felt like I was chopped off at the legs mm-hmm. I just felt like things were working for me I was so happy with uh, with how things were going with Payadora. And I have a string quartet. Um, Drew's in both groups, <clears throat> the Venuti String Quartet. And we were having some concerts with that 
ensemble two and yeah it was devastating just mm. really devastating and I think I immediately started looking for opportunities for anything any like I was worried about finances I was worried about having no outlets so I was looking for anything I could apply for for performances online applied to every grant program in existence which luckily in Canada there are mm -hmm. there are grants to apply for it's very fortunate to be here and luckily everything worked out because the Canadian government really took care of us like mm -hmm. I I mean I really I, <laughs> I want I want everyone to know like it's amazing when your government takes care of people it's I feel so grateful yeah, I mean, you. what proportion of your money before COVID, like right around that time, was from live performance? Me, like 90%. Right, and that just stopped. Yeah. And, and Annie has never been to school in person. No, she has. She, uh, she did because they have JK here. Okay. Junior kindergarten, so she did that. And then she did part of, is that right? No. She only did part of JK then, I guess. I'm getting confused. Because she started, because French immersion starts in senior kindergarten, which is like American kindergarten. Okay. So I guess she did all, she never did French in school. So she did half of her JK year. Okay. Her junior kindergarten year, which is, I mean, it's kind of like, preschool let's say right in the u.s but it's publicly funded yep. it's part of the school system so she she has done all of her french immersion online mm -hmm. which is a real challenge yep i mean it's hard enough i mean to sit in front of a screen all day but people are speaking the language you understand i mean the kid she's i've gotten really frustrated with her because she doesn't stay in class mm -hmm. and she doesn't pay attention and she doesn't, she's just not there. She's not there. Right. But when I think in my calmer moments, <laughs> I think this is really hard for her. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Her teacher's going on and on in French. Mm -hmm. I mean, who can sit down and listen on a screen at age six? or even five last year, to somebody speaking all day at French. They don't even know what's going on. Mm -hmm. And then she has a cute little baby sister who's making noise. I mean, of course she'd rather just run around and play. So, and, and, and Sylvie and Annie, your two older kids, are still in remote school. And, yeah, you haven't had kids in in-person school for two years. I just wanted to round out this picture just a bit. <laughs> you know, um, for the past two years, you've you've been sort of managing your kids' remote schooling, which is no small task, and making them practice, making them food. Yes, violin and piano every day, almost every day. I mean, right, practicing yourself. Um, keeping them all alive, <laughs> <laughs> making sure that, you know, Drew it was and is able to do the 
producing work and the studio work that that he had at the beginning of COVID that he continued to get, which was really wonderful um, for you guys to be able to still have work as paid work as musicians and then applying for all of these grants, getting some of them, starting to be, you know, this family band video producer, all these different projects that have come into your life during this time, you know, and, and we've had conversations over the course of the pandemic you know, where I have turned into like this old lady who's like, you're doing too much, you know, <laughs> your energy, be careful. Are you resting? Are you taking time for yourself? And, you know, and you'll sort of say, but you did this, you did all this stuff, you wrote all these books, you published all these books. And, you know, I keep reminding you, I didn't do it in a pandemic. I had daycare, I had school, I had you know, all this stuff. And I still don't think I was doing as much as you're doing. And I don't want to fall back into this weird competition that I feel like so many women do, which is sort of like, you're doing too much, you're doing too much, you're doing too much. <laughs> um, but I will say, I'm both occasionally worried about you. Um but also just amazed by you. And it is very clear that one thing that we both have in common is that our work, and I think like our most creative work, has come out of our lives. Not, oh, uh, let me block out my real life. Let me, you know, let me shut myself off from my domestic life in order to create. Um, in order to invent. It's very much an aesthetics and a poetics <laughs> of, of, in, of interruptibility, of inclusion, of, of observation, of, you know, listening and watching people. And, and, and in our case, largely our children, our children's interactions with each other, with the world, you know, remembering our, remembering our own childhoods, but also like being the mom is so, it's just wild. <laughs> I mean, when you were talking before, I almost started to cry thinking of you rocking your babies because I can remember picking you up out of your crib, you know, when you were probably 10, 11 months old. I remember going in early in the morning. I felt like such a big girl because I would let your mom sleep. And I would go and pick you up and just rock you and change your diaper and play with you. And I mean, it's just, it's just amazing to me that you're, you're the mom now. <laughs> anyway, that's not a question. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I'm just like nostalgically rhapsodizing about you. But tell me the projects that you have that are currently active. You know what I mean? Like if you had a desk, what's on your desk? <laughs> well, one thing that we did during COVID, which I'm really proud of, is that Payadora teamed up with these dancers called Point Tango. It's a couple. And they're a lot like Drew and I. They're just like live and breathe their art. And they do a, a fusion of ballet and tango, which is really unique and really I saw them live and basically I was like 
have to work with them. We just mm. have to work with them. So we created a one-hour film together remotely mm. during COVID. I mean, Drew is a producer and a audio engineer and set everybody in the band up to be able to record properly at home. We recorded all this music. He put it all together, um, not being together at all. And then we filmed ourselves. We bought special lights and like black curtains. And then the dancer and I would work on FaceTime. He he was uh, Alex, the male dancer. He did most of the, well, he really was the editor and director. But he would sit there with me and let me just nitpick. Oh, a little bit to the left, a little bit to the left, a little bit to the right. Oh, here we go. That's right. Okay, the left hand is right with the music now. Perfect. Okay, because we're both perfectionists. So the thing that's really exciting is that this film that we made, Tango in the Dark, um, we're going to have a new project together coming up, which is great. We were actually supposed to put on Tango in the Dark in January. Mm. We had six shows I was so nervous about doing it in COVID. And in the end, all the things I was really nervous about doing got canceled anyway. <laughs> so <laughs> I got a grant to create a tango ballet based on a legend that I discovered from Argentina. It's called The Legend of Carao. It's a, it's a fable about how the Carao bird came to be. So this is uh, a story that I can make use of tango music and dancing and folk music and dancing. And I'm really excited about what we're going to be able to create together as a team. Again, I think it's a really good collaboration. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's one thing. And are you going to hope to be doing that in person or are you going to kind of work, I was going to say, as if COVID is still a thing. COVID is still a thing. <laughs> um, but are you going to continue to work remotely for as long as possible? Well, actually, I'm kind of ready to take a few risks, like having you in my home as mm -hmm. the first people outside of our bubble to be in our actual home. I've decided that when something's very important, then it's worth, it's worth the risk mm -hmm. to us. And so we will do some things together, but the dancers actually live half the year in Argentina. Hmm. And they feel pretty strongly about doing some of the filming there, mm -hmm. which means that I can't, unless I go, mm -hmm. <laughs> I have to hand over a lot of the direct, directorial ising mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't to, to them, actually. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so a bit to, a bit together, and then some remote as well. And the and Tango in the Dark, where did that end up? Did it end up showing? Did like where does it live? Is it right now? It's a it. You can still go on to Point Tango's website, mm -hmm. um, and and find. I think it's a pay what you can link mm -hmm. YouTube link. The idea being then it'll help us with future work together mm -hmm. the, from ticket sales. So, yeah. Okay, so that's number one. More collaboration with the tango dancers. What mm -hmm. else? Um, well, the, the family band, 
we as are of yet unnamed. Which <laughs> just <laughs> it's a struggle. <laughs> Listeners, if you can help name the band, you get a prize. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I have been working on a whole bunch of concepts for different songs that we could do because there's somebody who wants to pitch it to TV to possibly have our family make these kind of episodes, which would be a dream because then I could be writing songs and not be in charge of everything because I don't want to be in charge of absolutely everything. I want there to be an actual camera person and a lighting person and someone to say, hey, um, maybe you don't want the alcohol <laughs> behind your heads while you're singing uh-huh. that's on the shelf in Drew's studio. Mm-hmm. Because that would have been nice if it wasn't a tripod that couldn't tell us mm-hmm. that that was sitting there. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's, I mean, most things don't work out. So I'm not, I'm not holding my breath. But mm-hmm. it would be really cool. Mm-hmm. And also continuing development towards what hopefully could become a musical at some point. Mm-hmm. And, and that's just, the uh, thing that, that that would be your dream at this point, would be to be paid to write a musical, like a full-length kind of uh, old style. Old style is not the term. What am I calling it? What do you, Like, yeah, the, like. The old MGM classics, right? Like before music tends towards the rock, mm-hmm. you know, focus. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what I love. And that's what I love a lot of styles of music. So it's not that that's all, but I do feel a certain nostalgia. It's like the music of my childhood. And I like, I feel like it's very rare that you can find something that's really family friendly. Mm-hmm. That's available. And I love showing my kids those old musicals. And at least for my girls, a lot of even Disney is too scary. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so the hope is that somebody's going to see one of these amazing videos that you've created of original compositions being performed by the family band. And that you've put on YouTube and say, ah, let's hire her to write a musical. Yeah, I don't know if that's how it works, but uh, that would be great. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> I don't know how anything works. It seems like the thing that I have discovered, because I'm always like, why am I doing this? This is so not a good use of my time. It seems like my current thinking is, Create things because you want you want them in the world. And then hopefully, hopefully it leads somewhere. Mm-hmm. If you can produce something that you care about, maybe other people will care about it too. Mm-hmm. And I can't sit around and wait for somebody to hire me to do something and then have it be the something that I really care about. Mm-hmm. Right? It's always it's a, it's always a balance of having some employment that's paid mm-hmm. that's nice mm-hmm. but I'm in a good position which is that Drew actually has people who do hire him for his plethora of skills he has every skill imaginable that you would need if you want to produce anything 
uh, I feel like I can just sort of be on my own and just dream up things that I want to make, even though nobody wants them. Or they don't know that they want them. <laughs> right. And, <laughs> so. and maybe one of the few good things about COVID for you is you can't, you haven't been able to do that work for pay, even if you wanted to. And you might have been tempted mm-hmm. to go back to the orchestra work mm-hmm. um, because it pays well. Yeah. But no way. Right now, it doesn't sound really good to me. Like, at least if it's my band, I could be on stage far, further from the audience especially with getting rid of mask mandates and the, you know, vaccine mandates, everything that would made me feel vaguely comfortable, mm-hmm. they've taken away now. Yeah. And as a performer, it's it's really unfortunate because the audience gets to decide <laughs> my fate. Yeah. I go out there, you know, try and do my best performance I can, but I'm putting my elderly in-laws at risk. I'm putting my unvaccinated child at risk. And and I think it's it's kind of nice to just stay home, mm-hmm. practice the guitar, mm-hmm. and <laughs> write, and just be a mom. I got kind of used to this, this yeah. uh, COVID lifestyle in a way. But we did have a live stream Zoom concert with Pyadora last week, and I felt... Amazing. Like, mm. It was just beyond amazing to be with the band again, hearing, like, without headphones. I was mm. just hearing them play. Like, we had eye contact, you know. We could we could cue each other, <laughs> you know. So I, I crave that. Yeah. Judah has a, an amazing drum teacher, an amazing piano teacher. The drum teacher has young kids. And has not gone back to teaching in person. And I think I respect that entirely. And it's true, especially as a drummer, Judah doesn't want to play drums by himself. He wants to play with other people. And in some ways, his drumming has suffered um, because of COVID. And his piano has, like, flowered because of COVID. And his piano teacher does come and have in-person classes with him. And you can't teach middle school students music remotely. It's impossible. You You mean as a class? As a class, yes. Because I think privately you can. Yes, I agree. Um, In jazz, which is Judah's main passion, it was a whole bunch of saxophone players and Judah playing drums. And there was no way to do that safely. When we talk about risks that we're willing to take, for Judah, going back to, you can't play soccer remotely. <laughs> so that his two greatest passions and the things that keep him healthy are music and soccer. And so a return to those two things has been so good for his spirit. You know, it was so meaningful to me that you came with your family to Maine when I was having my cancer scare. And that was like, you hadn't been, I don't know if you still have really been inside a grocery store since COVID, but you had been almost entirely isolated up until that point, And you were willing to risk 
driving from Toronto to Maine and spending time with me in this like really crazy moment in my life. I think that there are we're now in this really difficult moment where a lot of kind of people in even in our circles are just over it. They're just done. And I think that, you know, I'm not talking about the anti-vaxxers and I'm not talking about the people who think it's like they're right not to wear a mask and like cough in your face. I'm talking about people who teach middle school and who just feel like the risk of getting COVID is worth being in person or the risk of teaching without a mask is worth it because let's say kids have speech delays or whatever it is. These are, these are good reasons. Mm -hmm. And yet I feel like it's really leaving people like you behind. Certainly it's leaving people who have autoimmune issues or, you know, other reasons why, these mask, you know, dropping the mask mandates are just not okay. But I don't know. I just wonder if you could talk about that because I know that there are so many commonplace listeners who for lots and lots of reasons feel abandoned by kind of everybody moving on from COVID Mm -hmm. as if it's over. Yeah, I mean... I feel like I'm just always a few months or more <laughs> behind everybody. So maybe I'll get there. Mm-hmm. But I don't care about going into the grocery store. I don't care about trying on new clothes or anything like that. It doesn't matter to me. So I I'm okay with sticking with how I've been doing things for the last few years, except when it comes to rehearsing and performing. Mm -hmm. And so we just had a string quartet concert. It was so challenging because we were so worried that we wouldn't be able to do the concert if somebody got COVID. Mm -hmm. And so we did a lot of the rehearsing online, which there's, you know, delays and audio and Queuing is an issue and intonation practice. There's just a lot of things that are lost that way. And so then when we would rehearse together, we'd have the air purifier going and we'd all wear masks and I can't see my sounding point, which really bugs me because that's how I can create the exact sound I want is taking a look once in a while of what I'm doing or jumping back and forth between different techniques and you can't see what you're doing. You can't see your finger going to the pizzicato or the where the bow is on the string. Or just the fact I always get a headache from it, but I just I feel like I feel like I just have to wear a mask because otherwise I'm not going to be able to... And we did a testing every time we'd get together. We'd all test as well. Mm-hmm. And then after all that effort, then you go into the audience, there's just so many people without a mask. And so it feels like it feels like a lot of sacrifices and a few years of not being able to do this, you know, very important aspect of our life. It feels like not that much to ask to wear a mask to me. And if I were going to run into a store, which I'm not, but if I did, I would wear a mask and it would not 
be an issue. I think the problem, I really feel for people who work for like eight hours in a mask. Because for me, I do get a headache and I do find, I find it's challenging to wear for long periods. But I don't know why we can't just zip in and out of places safely and keep others safe. Mm-hmm. There is a singer who Drew plays with regularly who had a double lung transplant, mm. cystic fibrosis. Like she can't, she can't do anything. Like I don't know when she's going to be able to do things. Mm-hmm. And so that I feel, I feel badly about that as well. I think I will feel better better when and if my two-year-old can get vaccinated. And I have trouble figuring out how much I need to worry about any of these things. But the truth is, why take a risk if, if I don't have to and if it doesn't really matter to me? So when we thought about you coming, okay, you're going on an airplane. Like, this is like a lot of no-nos to us. Mm-hmm. We were like, well, it's Rachel. It's Judah, you know? And for my family, you guys are really, really important. And um, you you didn't want to hang out with us too much because your mom was pushing it. But I was desperate, <laughs> desperate for your attention and admired you always and still do. And was very flattered that you asked me to do this mm-hmm. and very intimidated. And... Uh, I feel like I have no idea what your question was now. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, you answered my question. Here's okay. my here's my maybe potentially last question, okay. which is having known from a relatively young age that you wanted to be a musician, specifically a violinist, but also going through all of these stages to find a place in music that feeds you and excites you and is fun as well as financially sustainable and rewarding, you know, in these other in these other ways. And you are the mom of three potential future musicians. How do you go about giving them the gift of music in a way that's both, I mean, they don't want to practice sometimes. I feel like this is something that many, many parents struggle with, particularly parents, you know, of our generation who are not are not super comfortable with the more traditional ways of being like, you know, sit here and eat this food and if, if you're going to sit here for a week. Like, we don't do that stuff. And yet, to get your kid to be able to, like, play music requires a lot of repetition and stuff that kids don't necessarily want to do. I, I'd just love to hear you talk about how 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 that's going for you. <laughs> Ooh, <laughs> or advice a... that you have for for parents who who want their kids to have music in their lives. So I could answer this question so many different ways. Mm-hmm. And it depends on the day. Mm-hmm. There are days when you, if you asked me this question, I would say, I figured it out, Rachel. <laughs> the really hard thing was getting my eldest to understand that you have to practice every day. And now that I work that out, 
You know, like she did the whole thing, like laying on the floor, the crying, the drama, then the whole bit that you've, you know, I'm a, I was a violin teacher before I was a mom and I knew it was like this. And I cannot believe that any of these parents did it. Mm -hmm. Like, I really, I'm in awe that I had any employment. Mm -hmm. I can't believe people... It's so hard, you know? I really feel for these parents now. And they used to, I used to have parents always saying, oh, you are so patient. I'm not patient like you, but though I only had to see the kid for 30 minutes or an hour a week, and I was getting paid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I didn't deserve any of those compliments. When it comes to your own kids, it's a lot harder to be patient. And... So far, I have taught them both violin and piano, and Drew helps me as well, Um, though I'm the primary teacher, just because he's more employed than me, let's Mm -hmm. be honest, and I'm in the house. So sometimes I feel like because she, because I was strict about it with her, Annie does kind of just know, oh, this is how life is. Mm -hmm. We do these things. We practice the violin and piano. This is expected. And I would say overall, I think it has gone better. Mm -hmm. So that's the good news. If you have more than one, I think it's possible, at least based on this very small sample, that you can create a sort of culture within the home. I mean, the two-year-old's running around with her little violin. You Mm -hmm. saw all the time. And she says, with she has limited verbal skills. She says, pinky on top of the bow. Like, she's (laughs) pinky on top. So she's catching on. Mostly she doesn't want help, but she's heard me. So that's good. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I I feel conflicted all the time. I mean, every time it's not going well. I question my parenting. I question not just letting them run around. I mean, I was older when I started. um, But I do also feel like because I was older, I couldn't do a lot of other things. I had to focus. Mm. I had to put those hours in. My parents didn't let me do anything else. Mm. And I was not happy about that. I wanted to be in the school musical. and But uh, they were right. Mm-hmm. I had to focus. I was too, I started too old. So maybe if the kids put in the work, especially during such a ridiculous time as this, what else are you going to do anyways? Mm-hmm. You might as well practice. Um, maybe later they can have more variety in what they do and already have these skills. They are learning so many skills for life. So whether they become professional musicians, I like to think that the work I'm doing with them is teaching them how to learn, teaching them that they know that they can learn anything. I want them to be confident that if they want to learn something, they can. And this is something that I've seen with Drew. He he always thinks he can learn anything. Mm. He definitely can. I never had that confidence, but it's coming. Mm-hmm. I think I'm, I, I tend towards the, oh, I don't think I could do that. But then slowly, as I prove to myself, oh, look at that. I did write Spanish lyrics. Yes, I needed assistance to, you know, check my syntax. But if I if I put my mind to something, like really put 
the effort in. I can do it, and I want the kids to have that. And nothing kicks your butt like the daily grueling work of classical musician, like music studies. So I think that's great. Also, just the connection to history, the the appreciation for the art, the just striving for beauty in this world. It's something that I think so many people don't understand. Um, for me, it's everything. And that's that's what I want them to have. I want them to I want them to know quality when they hear it. Mm. I want them to have standards for themselves and for others. Mm-hmm. I want them to take great pride in their work and their their abilities and to believe that that if they put the work in they can achieve anything. Mhm. Mm. Oh my God, it's so beautiful. <laughs> um, I know you were nervous about this, but did you have a fantasy of a question you hoped I would ask you? I didn't. Uh, I didn't know what to expect. Mm-hmm. I was like searching through my computer documents this morning. Like, why is she asking me to do this? Am I a writer? Oh my God. Okay, oh, I did write this. Maybe it's a fable. Oh, this is an essay I wrote. I'm going to send it to her. And I thought that I might need some backup. Interesting. For like, you know, because I I got an English degree, but I didn't use it really. And But that's so funny because you listen to Commonplace. And I mean, first of all, you are a writer. That is a part of your life, but it's not your primary identity. And you... Why do you bother listening to all these poets go on and on about poetry? Well, they're very interesting people. Yes. And I like, I mean, perfectly honest, I like listening to you. (laughs) (laughs) Uh And uh, actually, I gain insight in what's going on with you at any given time or Mm -hmm. maybe a few months before the editing when it goes out. But And then I think that... The poets are interesting mm-hmm. people. Yeah, you are an interesting person. <laughs> <laughs> Thank Extremely. You. Well, they're poets. usually like real poets. Like they're published and, you know, they have books and... This is one of many reasons why I really don't want to just have poets because you are a real musician. And I think it's... I think poets you know, or writers, we get so locked into this idea, you know, what is the realness? I mean, who's to say who is a writer and who is not a writer? Is it publication? Is it publication was a certain kind of press? Is it publication and making a certain kind of money? Because no poet I know supports themselves writing poetry. So if that's the line between being like, having poetry as a hobby or having poetry as a profession, there are no professional poets. That, like, doesn't even exist. And so I think it's really important to listen to and talk to artists in other genres and other media who have different terms of success or different 
or different ways of identifying as the thing that they are. Because really what I'm interested in is process. And to be around you is to be around like someone in just this amazing stage of your creative development. And that's what's so exciting to me. I mean, you are always lovely in the way that you ask me, you know, are you writing anything? And I'm like, no. <laughs> but I think even though I get anxious that if I'm not writing at the moment or in the past two years or in the past three years that I'm not a writer, I am a writer um, because of the way I go through the world. And that's what I'm really interested in, like the the process, the the... Mm, the creative impulse, the, the, the way in which for some people their lived experience becomes art and, and whether it becomes music or writing or story or, you know, tapestry. Um, and for other people, that's not how they go through the world. Their lived experience is their lived experience and their work is maybe not related to that. So, yeah, I think it's funny I think to it's me. so it's so rich to mm. live your life in your art. Like I feel I feel so grateful to have that. And I feel like I felt that I always had so many activities at my disposal mm-hmm. during COVID. Mhm. And um I could pick up my violin. I could go sit at the piano. I could work at the guitar. I could sit down and write a story. Like I don't need, I don't need anything or anybody. And actually, in my twenties, when Drew was on tour, and I would come home from my gig, I didn't have that. Mm-hmm. I was just lonely. Interesting. So now I feel I'm equipped. <laughs> I'm equipped for <laughs> solitude. Yeah. And actually, I haven't had it. (laughs) I feel like I could maybe have a little more. It could be helpful. (laughs) Yes, yes. I do think sometimes that it's about equipping yourself or becoming equipped to handle solitude um, and to handle the feeling of just being all alone. Um, which is also not a feeling and not an experience I have very frequently. But I think that's really interesting that that's part of what we're teaching our kids or ourselves when we learn how to make things or we learn how to find the instruments to, like, have a voice um, and also just have things to do. Mm-hmm. With that... That have meaning. Yeah. Right? It makes you feel good when you... I love that feeling when I can say, look what I did today. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I I took that memory, I put it down on paper, I, and it exists now. I know I can share it with whoever I want or no one. Mm-hmm. You know, I can make a song out of it. You know, I can... I can give it to my kids, mm-hmm. and then they can know how I felt when I was 12 because I wrote a story about it. Yeah. 
or me and Judah can show up and you can teach him to play something and play with him. And like you have this language that the two of you share. Yeah, we were it's playing incredible. jazz today. I know. It's very fun. I, I know. Okay, let's end because we have to make sure that your toddler has not destroyed anything. <laughs> Luckily, Drew's with her or yeah. else she would have. Okay, thank you. This has been episode 102 of Commonplace with Rebecca Wokstein. I'm your host, Rachel Zucker. This episode was produced by me, Valentine Conady, Langa Chinyoka, Christine LaRusso, and Nathaniel Wokstein. Many thanks to Rebecca Wokstein, Drew Jureka, and all the members of Piadora Tango Ensemble and Venuti String Quartet for the music they put into the world and for sharing it so generously with our listeners. Thank you to our Commonplace patrons, to everyone who sends us messages of support and encouragement, and to you, listener. Thank you for listening. Lovely idea that I could fall in love with you Cause that's the whole idea, it's true